Hello, and welcome to a new podcast series called Behind the Badge, Football's Hidden Gems, which shines a light on the history of football clubs that are well known in their domestic competitions, but not to the rest of the footballing world. I'm Alicia, your host for today's episode, and I will be joined later by my co-host, Toby and Michael. In this episode, we are going to be uncovering the history of Shamrock Rovers FC, who are currently playing in the League of Ireland Premier Division. We'll be providing information about who they are, where they are from, and how they got to where they are today. Now to give you an introduction to Ireland Shamrock Rovers. Shamrock Rovers are the Republic of Ireland's most successful club. They are a Dublin-based team formed in 1901, and they have won the league title a record 20 times and the FAI Cup a record 25 times. The club also made Irish football in history in the 1950s when they became the first Irish team to compete in European competition when they played in what was then known as the European Cup in 1957. Now you have some information on the club, I'm going to be joined by our guest for this episode. Robert Goggins and Matt Dara Ferris, who are both historians and members of Shamrock's media team. Let's go straight into the interview. Is it if we start kind of if we kind of for both of you say that you're talking to someone who doesn't know who Shamrock are, if you could, if you're asked to like give a short description of the club, where would you, what would you say? So if we start with Robert. Um, well, we regard ourselves as being Ireland's number one. Um, we started out in 1899. We had very humble beginnings. Um, we had a very um, difficult period up to 1921-22 when the club finally settled down. And once we went into the, the newly formed League of Ireland at the time, we very quickly became the, the top club, winning the league in our, our very first year. And then we just went right through the various decades then all the way up to the time of 1987 when we lost our ground in Milltown, where the club basically held all the records in Irish football. Uh, first to do the double, first to win, retain the cup, first to uh, represent the League of Ireland in Europe, um, first for success in most of the competitions. So um, we, I'd say that we could quite rightly say that we are the most successful club, quite apart from the fact that we have record number of National League titles and National Cup titles. And Matt Dara, would you, what would you say if you was asked that question? Yeah, I'd echo what Robert says. If you, if you look at the, the number of titles that Rovers have won, League trophies, FAI Cup, FAI Cup wins, it'd be the case. Uh, we'd also... Football is a lot about rivalry. And if you asked others who weren't Shamrock Rovers fans in the League of Ireland who their main rivals are or who the team they'd like to beat, I think most fans of other clubs would actually say Shamrock Rovers. And I think that answers the question about what type of club that, that Rovers are. Uh, having said that, 
and Robert mentioned it there about the, the loss of Milton. At different stages in Shamrock Rovers' history, the, the club has been very successful. It's also been, has has gone long periods with, without success. Um, and, and really the club, in my time, I'm in my late 40s, a lot of it has been defined by the loss of Milton. So um, a wilderness years renting... Uh, renting pitches from our from our rivals and, and getting to Tallis Stadium in 2009 has been the renaissance of, of, of the club in between leaving Milton and getting to Tala Shamrock Rovers only won one league title so that was between 1987 and, and um, 2009 when we first got to Tala and then we won the league the next year um, and while we haven't we've won five league titles uh, in in that time since since 2010 um, and a lot of that has has been due to the fact that we've finally got our own ground and that we've been able to to there's lots of other things happening around the club, but I think that's really been a huge part of it. And um, so that's probably what I'd say about the club. And you both kind of touched on it then with the successes of the club. Obviously, as someone who I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't really know about Shamrock before this. And obviously, just researching the first thing that you kind of learn about is the successes or the cups, the uh, European competitions. So in that kind of uh, group of successes, what would you say has like been the most, not necessarily the most important, but sticks out to you with the so many different competitions, so many over the years, if you could kind of pin it down as the point of, this is the pinnacle of where we became the most successful. What would you say that was? Well, I think, as I said, um, we won the league in our very first season. And so we, we basically got off to flying start. And within two more years after that, uh, we won the, the league and cup double. And then another two seasons after that, we won the league again. So that was during the 1920s when we also began the first of a record five in a row national FAI Cup titles. So, you know, when you say the pinnacle, I don't think there really was one with Shamrock Rovers because they just started off as they meant to go on, as it were. The club just continued on, as I said, um, down through the decades. As McDerry says, there were highs and lows and certainly... Uh, no bigger or low a period than after we left Milltown to the time that we got to Tallis Stadium. But, you know, right up to that stage, the club was basically nearly always there or thereabouts challenging. So there was a slight period during the 1970s when, you know, when uh, people all over Ireland suddenly had televisions, say, like, I mean, it was the same in the UK, like homes were re really only starting to get TVs from the 60s. So, when people in Ireland had access to British television stations and they could watch football, like the big match or whatever, on ITV on a Sunday afternoon, they, they weren't too inclined to go out during the wintertime to support, you know, local football. And I think that that was a low period for the club as well. But then, you know, that was only for a couple of years as well, because in 1977, uh, John Giles came back home from West Brom where he had been player manager and he became player manager of Shamrock Rovers and the whole revival started again. So, the, as you know, it would be fair to say that the club was always there or thereabouts, like even in low periods. 
it wouldn't have been for too long. And Matt Dyer, what would you say? Uh, in terms of the pinnacle, one that always stands out to me, which maybe is a strange one, is, is the 1960s, because Shamrock Rovers won six FAI Cups in a row and uh, seven and eight years. And it's something that's always in, intrigued me. Um, they did win a couple of league titles in that time, but it was funny. It was it was Waterford were the, the main rivals at that time, and they were able to, to win the league but couldn't win the Cup. Meanwhile, Shamrock Rovers were... Um, Shamrock Rovers were winning the cup but couldn't couldn't win the league and to, and to go six years in a row and win the domestic cup is is pretty unprecedented. I remember talking to to Mick Leach who was the star striker from the the latter of those six in a row years um actually about the first defeats in 1970 and he said he came back into the dressing room and he was like this can't be right we can't have lost the cup because the club were just so used to 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 winning the cup. Um and it probably uh, one of the things I, I it probably stands out to me because for so long Shamrock Rovers didn't win the FAI Cup. They they won the Cup in the last year in Milltown. So we're talking about 1987 um, and got to a number of Cup finals since then. And having won 24 FAI Cups, uh, it took until 2019 to win the 25th FAI Cup. And it was something that, you know, it became a bit of a millstone because Shamrock Rovers were the Cup specialists Um because it won so many more FAI Cups. You, you needed to add up second, third and fourth place to have more Cup wins than Shamrock Rovers had. And, and uh, But it became a bit of a millstone. Other rivals would talk about the Cup specialist and it would be a, a term thrown to to slag off and to to denigrate where Rovers were. And, and to win the FAI Cup in 2019, get the fabled 25th one, it was also a stepping stone for us to get back to winning uh, winning ways in the league title um, and last season uh, we won our 20th league title and so this season above the club crest there's, there's two stars for each of the 10 cup wins um, and I think that's that's a real landmark so that that the cup success from the 60s stands out to me because for most of my time following the club even though Rovers won a number of league titles, they couldn't win the FA Cup. And then also in 2019, it was a signpost to where this current Shamrock Rovers side, we knew then that actually we were very competitive and we could win a title. And, and the club went on the next season in 2010 to win the first of what is what is three in a row. So so they probably stand out to, to me, Alicia. Yeah. And kind of, this is a bit jumbled, but kind of going back to the beginning, you spoke about the success, but... Um, when when I found out there was some sort of confusion of the formation date, has that been cleared up now, or is it Robert? Still... Robert's definitely the man to answer that one because I think Robert, you're probably the man who's cleared this up. So, well, this has been a very contentious all down through the years because um, some people maintained that it was formed in 1899 and others in 1901, but there was a lot of other dates that came came up, not specific dates, but years of formation, say 1902, 1903, and some say 1913, some said 1919. These were periods that these uh, some of these years that were mentioned could be explained by um, some periods where the club actually stopped playing for a while and then reformed. So the main debate centered around 1899 to 1901. And um, I wrote co-wrote a book in 1993 with uh, Paul Doolan, who was the then program editor of Shamrock Rovers. And I had to settle for 1901 because the then editor of the publishing company at Gill Macmillan said to me, look, you can't leave this up in the air. You've got to be kind of definite about it. So 
I settled in 1901 because there was more evidence pointed towards that than 1899. But I always said I would accept 1899 if it could be proved. Now, we haven't been still able to prove the date of formation of the globe, but in my chronological history book, which the second edition is being published next week, what I actually state is that we can be absolutely guaranteed that the globe was around in 1899. And we've been able to find that out from the time that the Hoops book was wrote in 1993 because of, um, you know, improvements in technology where you can, you know, do digital searches and there's digital databases and so on online now. Uh, you can check all the old newspapers, wouldn't have been available before. And uh, one of our supporters, uh, Jason McLean, uh, just stumbled across a mention in 1899 of Shamrock Rovers when he was just uh, doing, doing a little bit of searching around to see if he could find anything. Uh, he didn't really know what he'd found. Um, he, he then contacted me and he asked me, and then I studied it and I compared the teams and all the information that was available. And then we said, yeah, what we would actually say then is that we know that the club was around in 1899. But, you know, some people say, oh, that must mean that it must be formed in 1898 then, because it would be in the 1898 stroke 99 season. But if you study football at that time, you'd realise that um, a lot of clubs were only playing friendly games or whatever. So it's uh, we just know that we were around in 1899. And that's all we're basically saying at the moment. And when you go back to that time, you spoke about immediately having success. How do you think, as like after research and all of that, how do you think that, effects like you looking into the club and your kind of passion for the club, that immediate success? Well, that period, 1899 to 1922, was time when Rovers were a junior club, not a senior club. So the immediate success that I spoke about there earlier on refers to the club as a senior club when they joined the League of Ireland, which was only formed in 1922. Um. There's a lot of history in Irish football around that time because it was a split between North and South, which happened just coincidentally at the same time as the country actually split between North and South when the southern 26 counties got independence from, from Great Britain. So, you know, if you look at the period 1899 to 1922, the club didn't actually partake in competition until 1902 when it went into the um, its first cup competitions and then joined the league the year after that. But as a junior club, they won the league the following season in 1904-05 and again in 1905-06 and the cup as well. And then they disbanded, but they, they came back again in 1914 for two years. And I'm not sure whether it was because of the a civil situation here in Ireland following the 1916 rising or because of the Great War that the club, it didn't disband apparently, but they did stop playing football. Once they came back into football again in 1920, they went very quickly from the Leinster Junior League up to the Leinster Senior League up to the League of Ireland within three years. And as I say, the club never looked back after that. And with that... Do you think that has some sort of impression on the current players, like the success? Is that at all related to, obviously, may not exactly now, 
but throughout the years has they tried to like emulate that yeah the fans won't ever let anybody forget about that um i mean we won four league titles in a row as mcdar was mentioning there during that period during the 1980s when we won the league uh, four times in a row and the fei cup for three of those seasons as well and one of the songs that's always sung at the stadium is we won four in a row so that's always drilled into any player that ever comes to the club and I think the older supporters, and of course, there won't be too many left now from, you know, going back to the 1950s. But even, you know, old supporters would always tell the players about the great teams and great players. And, you know, we're always writing about these in the match programme. And, you know, anything else that we do, we always commemorate um, players' uh, achievements or their, their deaths and stuff like that. So the players, when the player comes into the club, he will pick that up very, very quickly from, you know, the fans and he'll pick up the tradition of the club very, very quickly. Robert, I might come in here if I could. Yeah. Uh, Alicia, um, I spoke with Tony Cousins, who was a striker with Shamrock Rovers um, in the kind of the uh, late kind of 1990s. And he he's currently the under 19 uh, manager at the club and and he he talked about that he he said that uh, if I can quote him you know you hear managers when they come into a club that history doesn't matter as they're trying to take the focus of what the club has uh, won before but Tony was saying the history does matter the history is what Shamrock Rovers is all about if you're a big big club you're big because of your history and when you play for Shamrock Rovers no matter what era the supporters will judge you on the previous players who wore that shirt that's the standard you have to try and rise to so I thought that was interesting when I spoke to him about it because uh, he'd, he he's of an era that I'd describe as you know one of the heroes and, and he'd said he was a Shamrock Rovers fan he'd look back he was a player and a fan, but he'd look back at the 1980s team, the team that Robert mentioned won four in a row. And he said, they're the legends around the club. So, um, you know, that that history, no player is kind of allowed, allowed to forget that um, because of the su success of the club in, in, in different stages over its long history. And to kind of open it up a bit more up to kind of both of you, um, Shamrock was the first Irish club to compete at, in Europe with the European Cup in late 50s. Uh, how, again, kind of like going back, but how have you kind of found that that has impacted, obviously not only Shamrock, but Ireland's football on the whole? Well, I think that was a period, um, you know, that followed on shortly after the first European Cup competition was set up. And it's probably surprising that the club from Ireland went into it so quickly, because when you look at the setup of the European competitions now under UEFA, uh, even the introduction of the new Conference League and how it has expanded, um, I mean, you're talking about maybe only a handful of clubs, 12 clubs maybe, that started out in the European Cup. So it was a fantastic achievement for Shamrock Rovers to be one of the clubs that went into Europe uh, at that time. We went in in 1957 uh, when we played the Busby Babes, the great Manchester United, um, in our very first game. And I suppose, in a way, because I said to you before there that, you know, Shamrock Rovers were first to set records and first to, you know, um, for achievements and so on in domestic competitions, that 
it was probably fitting that they were also first uh, League of Ireland club to go into Europe. And I suppose um, it wasn't, it, it was a baptism of fire for them because of the fact that they came up against the Busby Babes only a couple of months before the Munich uh, tragedy. But I think that, that uh, they set down a marker, I think, after that. They they lost heavily at home in Dalymount Park, but when they went for the second leg at Old Trafford, uh, they put in an absolute fantastic display, uh, losing 3-2. And it was noted at the time that they got a standing ovation from the Old Trafford crowd, which was quite unusual at the time. So I suppose, you know, after that, and the uh, Rovers played... Nice from France then two years later in the European Cup as well and were very, very unlucky to have lost out to them. Um, I suppose every club after that really wanted to follow on from that and to go into Europe and it must be remembered too that there wasn't you know financial compensation for clubs at that time. It would actually cost clubs to go into Europe. But, you know, I suppose in every competition that uh, a club takes, play, takes participates in they're always looking to go up a higher level or always looking to test themselves at a different level. And that was the opportunity that Europe brought. And I think that Rovers opened the door for all other Irish clubs after that. Have you got anything to add, Dara? Maybe just a, a match that, that stands out for me is the, the 1966 Cup Winners' Cup tie against Bayern Munich. Uh, the game was played in, in Dalyman Park and the home leg was, was one all. And really, Rovers probably should have won it. There was a, a delay for a few missiles thrown onto the pitch. Uh, and maybe some things never change over over history. Uh, and it kind of took the momentum out of the game. And in the second leg in, in Munich, um, it was two all gone quite late into the game. And Gert Muller uh, scored late to make it 3-2. Uh, Rovers would have gone through and away goals if Muller hadn't have scored. Um, you know, that was a team that included Franz Beckenbauer and... Uh, Rovers really were very unlucky not to win the tie. Uh, Bayern went on to actually win the Cup Winners' Cup that year. So it's it's one that stands out for me from that time. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on, Rovers weren't in the European Cup because they weren't winning the 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 league title from for most of the sixties. So the Cup Winners' Cup was the competition that we're mainly mainly staying in. And then, you know, you might want to talk about it, but but fast forward to more recent times and you look at Shamrock Rovers being the first uh, League of Ireland side to qualify for the group stages of the UEFA competition back in 2011 and then backing that up last year by um, admittedly the Conference League is a new competition but but getting back to the group stages um, and, and being a bit more successful this time around compared with 2011. Yeah, if we kind of follow on with that because that was where I was kind of going. Again, the kind of thing uh, just how did it feel just at that moment in time to know that you got through and you again created more history? Yeah, I, I might come in on this one if I could. Like the the genesis of that probably you, you go back the previous 12 months when um the Shamrock Rovers were playing in, in the kind of UEFA, UEFA Cup Europa League uh, against Juventus who had been uh, docked points and we're not playing Champions League football. We're actually playing in the lower competitions and and to play against a, a caliber of of that side, it, it it's reminiscent of playing Bayern Munich in the sixties or playing Manchester United, the Busby Bays in the fifties. To play against a team um, that had Alessandro Del Piero in it at at the time was 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 amazing. And and Rovers were reasonably competitive in the tie, but were were beaten three nil, three nil in aggregate. But but then twelve months later. 
they were in the Champions League qualifiers. They they came through the first round, which gave them a backdoor when they were eliminated by Copenhagen and into the Europa League playoff against uh, uh, Partizan Belgrade. The first leg was in Tala. Um, again, probably Rovers could easily have won. It was, it was one all. Gary McCabe scored probably one of the best goals we've seen in, in Tala Stadium. Uh, um you know, real star of that team, maybe more known as the sister or sorry, the brother of uh, uh, Katie McCabe, who's the Arsenal player and is the, the the captain of the women's national team, the Irish team that's going to go to the first World Cup, uh, Women's World Cup uh, later on this year. And then in the second leg, uh, I was one of just 43 fans, away fans in, in Belgrade who travelled out to the game. Uh, no one really gave us much hope, myself included. And uh went behind in the game and then Pat Sullivan scored an absolute uh, screamer from about 25 yards of volley from from a from a corner uh, and then the game went into into extra time and then very late in extra time Shamrock Rovers won a penalty and it was absolutely massive um you know the prize money that time we probably thought it was maybe bigger than than uh than it was going to be, but effectively it was a million uh, euro penalty kick that that Stephen O'Donnell stepped up to to take and and he put it home to uh, and then just the celebrations afterwards and the dawning realisation that actually we were going to be playing right into December. We we play summer football here in the League of Ireland. The, the season runs from kind of mid-February to the uh, the start of November. So this was going to take us right into December and then working out, okay, as fans, could we get time off work to go on these away trips? Who we were going to get? And then we, we were drawn against uh, Spurs Um and uh, Ruben Gazan and, and Pauk. But the Spurs games probably stand out. We went 1-0 up in White Hart Lane. Um, Stephen Rice is, is a member of the backroom team with Stephen Kenny at the, with the men's national team at the minute. He, he scored a goal and it kind of was like poking a bear. Spurs woke up um, and uh, scored, rattled off three goals pretty pretty quickly, but we lost the game. And then the home leg... Um, people will have be very much aware of Harry Kane breaking the all-time Spurs goal-scoring record, but they might not necessarily be aware that the very first goal that he scored was against Shamrock Rovers in the Europa League in in Tallaght Stadium. Um, and for that, those games we played the games in Tallaght Stadium, which was quite important for us. And um, we had only two permanent stands at the time. They put in temporary seating behind either goal, bringing up the capacity. Um, and in July of this year, the capacity will go up to tw- uh, over ten thousand. We've we'll, we've three stands at the minute. The fourth and final stand goes in later on in the summer, and I think we got an inkling of maybe what we could get out of Tallaght Stadium, playing in front of these big crowds. You know that Spurs game was was upwards of probably about ten thousand with the temporary seating, um, competing against these teams. Although we were well beaten in 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 that uh, game in Tallaght, to be fair, um. But it was a signpost of of probably where we wanted to go. We had a few fallow years in in the middle of the the twenty tens, um, but it's really exciting times to to be following Rovers, getting back into the Conference League, and and this time around we we did we in twenty eleven we lost all six games. This time around we got uh, two points, and the games we drew against were against. Uh, Jurgarden and Ghent, and they were the teams that had actually qualified out of the group. Um, and, and even getting those points, uh, the prize money for winning the league in the League of Ireland is pretty low. You get way more money for actually drawing a game in the Europa Conference League than you actually do for winning the winning the League of Ireland. So these are really important from a a financial point of view, and also very important for the team to 
you know, to be competitive in these games and, and the really exciting matches played in the Europa Conference League uh, in Tallis Stadium last season. And kind of going uh, on that kind of level, um, with the stadiums, obviously there was time spent as a homeless club. Could you kind of take me through that kind of transit or then different periods of stadiums and issues surrounding them? Yeah, um, when Rovers went into the League of Ireland in 1922, they acquired a ground in Milltown, which was in South Dublin. It was a little bit of a distance away from their, their Bertland of Ringsend, which was in southeast Dublin. Um, but it wasn't too far. Uh, people could walk up along by the canal and to the ground. It was very good tram service and bus service. So it was... Uh, it was the best location they could get at the time. Uh, they got a long-term lease on the land actually belonged to the Jesuit religious organization. But the uh, Rovers were there from 1922 right up to 1987. Now, initially Rovers were, as they are now, uh, basically a fan-zoned club. But it was difficult uh, during the 1920s. Um, you'd probably be aware that after the war had ended that there was a lot of uh, recession and then there was the, the Wall Street crash which affected the whole world and whatever. So times were quite tough um, in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, we had um, a lady by the name of Mary Jane Cunningham who whose father was a committee member in the very early years and she became involved in the club herself. And she married a gentleman by the name of Joe Cunningham, who had no background in football whatsoever. But from time to time, he would give them loans or he would put a bit of money into the club. But in 1935, uh, the members sold out completely to Joe Cunningham. And the Cunningham era, as we would call it, uh, where the club was owned and controlled by the Cunningham family, began at that period, 1935, uh, right up to 1972, when the Cunningham sold out to the Kilcoyne brothers. Uh, and they had ownership of the club from 1972 up to 1988. But they also apparently had other ideas as to what they could do with the ground. Um, of course, you see, you'll never really know the true story about a lot of things that go on, because obviously these people won't ever, ever really tell you. But... In 1987, the news broke that the Kilcoins had actually bought the ground from the Jesuits. Uh, the Jesuits have maintained to this day that they didn't know that this was going to happen, that the Kilcoins were going to sell the ground off for property development. And uh, we, we, we give no uh, warning whatsoever. We just found out on a Friday morning in the newspapers that the, the club was to finish there the following Sunday. And the following Sunday, which was a cup semi-final against Sligo Rovers, uh, that was a very final game there. And we just went into a nomadic period, as McDara said there earlier. Um, from that period right up to 2009, where we were just going around from ground to ground, uh, the club was getting deeper and deeper into financial difficulties until it reached the point where the club went into examinership in 2005. That's where the members' model uh, kicked back in again when the 400 club, as it was known at the time, were successful. Their, their bid in the court was successful. And uh, we, we never really looked back after that, to be honest with you. We moved into Tallis Stadium then four years later. Thank you. We've not got very long left on this, but just to kind of pick up on that point of the 400 club, 
Could you kind of explain what it is and what it means? Yeah, I can. Um, so the, the 400 Club was set up um, really as a way to try and finish the stadium in Tala. So construction had kind of uh, stopped in um, uh, kind of 2001, I think. Uh, yeah, end, end of 2001, basically the money ran out. There was a shell of a, a stand, um, you know, concrete terracing for the length of one side of the stadium. And that, that was it. So the 400 Club was set up to try and fund uh, to provide funding to try and finish the stadium, but it it, it um uh, under the previous owners, it just became more and more difficult to try and finish the stadium, fund the stadium, and and run a a, a club at the same time and have a team, and and ultimately, it it fell in between. There was so much debt at, at that point. So when the the club nearly went into liquidation, but it 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 went into examinership, which was kind of the high court prevents the club being liquidated with new owners potentially coming in um, to pay off some of the debts generally, you know, 5p on the pound or 5 cent in the, in the euro. Um, so that ultimately it's better that the club continues uh, in some form, um, you know, paying off some of the debts. And then ultimately, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of debt at that stage. We're talking about a couple of million. So during the examination period, the 400 club essentially ran the club and could show that they could run the club at the time. There was a fundraising drive where people paid for membership. You, you paid 40 euro a month. Um, so people paid for memberships up front, five years, 10 years, uh, some some more. Um, and ultimately, the the high court um, uh, enables the, the club to continue as a going concern at the end of the examination period, basically with the 400 club owning 50% of the club, having put up a certain amount of money and, um, Ray Wilson, who's a Shamrock Rovers fan living in Australia, putting up the other 50%. Um, and that was the model for quite some time. As the fans, the 400 club, people continued to pay 40 euro a month and then later 50 euro a month. Ultimately, that was diluting Ray's um, stakeholders. So he only had 10% at one stage. I think the members owned 400. Um, but Ray organized a kind of a multi-million euro loan at a certain stage uh, um, you know, maybe kind of 2016, 2017, that time, and maybe a little bit later, um, which brought the ownership back to 50-50. Um, and then more recently, Dermot Desmond, who's the uh, majority shareholder in Celtic, um, and one of the richest people in Ireland, he he put in a, another couple of million to take a 25% stake. So the minute the membership is, the ownership structure is 50% is owned by the members. They appoint four directors onto the board. Uh, Dermot Desmond owns 25% and his organization, he's got two directors on the board. And Ray Wilson has uh, owns 25% and he owns he has two directorships on the board. And then there's an independent director that between them they've organized. So so that's the ownership model that we have at the minute. So it's kind of a hybrid model. Um, but it's a it was a one-off payment by Dermot Desmond. So he paid that money 25%. We're not he's not paying money in on an ongoing basis, and either is Ray, whereas the members do pay money in on an ongoing basis. But that's the 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 membership model. And um it's working pretty effectively at the minute. If you look at where the where the team is, I mean a lot of investment, that money, that money that Dermot Desmond put in was essentially to to pay for investment within the academy where rovers are are bringing through a lot of players and um, and people might be familiar with Gavin Bazunu, who's in goal for Southampton at the minute, and uh, he came through our academy system. So the system is, there's a lot of debate in Ireland about what model works. Certain clubs are members only. Certain clubs are owned by 
you know, people who are putting in money on an ongoing basis. I think the hybrid model certainly seems to be working reasonably well for Shamrock Rovers at the minute. Well, thank you both so much for doing this. It's getting close to the end of the meeting time, but thank you both so much again. It's been incredible. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alicia. It's nice talking Great. to you. Yeah, enjoy that. Thanks very much. All the best with us. Take it easy. Thank you. Bye. 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 What did you take from the interview, Toby? Um, I think uh, the most interesting part of the interview, I thought, was talking about the um, the first entry into the European Cup, the first Irish team to be in it. Um, as a Manchester United fan, obviously, thought that was interesting because um, first team they ever they ever met Manchester United, the Busby Babes. Um, I, but I think it was interesting that the the Irish football was so sort of like in amongst it back then because obviously now they they do qualify for competitions like like they said recently qualified for the Europa Conference League but before they were like facing Bayern Munich, Nice, Manchester United and giving them good games. Did you so, as a yeah, Manchester oh. Sorry what are you going to say? Did you as a Manchester United fan the that kind of existed, or was this kind of the first time you'd come across them and made the connection? Um, well, I always knew about Shamrock Rovers purely because they were just so dominant in Ireland and they had been, you know, around Europe every so often. Um, but I, well, I didn't know the history of their first ever game was against us and how it was in that season of the. Munich Air disaster that they played us. That was the first round. So it was interesting to also learn a bit about the history of my club as well. Yeah. I think as well, kind of picking up on the um, European competitions as well, I was quite surprised at how how much the light of a difference have made for Irish football. Like, as yeah. a club, you kind of know that they've been there, they've been there for years but for them to be the the, the first it was it really kind of hit home about how much this club has achieved and all the records have broken and made you really yeah, yeah, start to realize much, how strong of a club these are yeah and how much like they're worth for Irish football you know being in these European competitions that really not many if any other clubs in Ireland really got to they yeah. were they were sort of the presenting Ireland on the world stage for everyone to see, especially against you know these huge clubs in the in the sixties and the fifties. Yeah, would you agree, Michael, with that? Yeah, it's also as well like it's not just like obviously they are representing Ireland, but they've had to they had to get through and become first of all the best club in Dublin because. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's about four or five clubs in the Irish league that are based in Dublin. So just to come away as not only the best team in Ireland, but 
be sort of well have the bragging rights in in the capital as well. It just shows that you could go from fighting just teams around you to then obviously representing on a European scale. Yeah. I'll admit I got from the interview just on the whole, I was um quite surprised. I know we've kind of brushed on it, but um how successful they've been throughout the history. Like there wasn't just one period of where they were successful and then it's just been that they were successful right from the beginning and they haven't really seemed to stop. Like even now, the Fed in the league currently and they've managed to with um withstand all the issues they've had with um uh, examinerships and all a few different earners and stuff but they've still managed to be successful consistently they've managed to stay at the top pretty much from the beginning to present yeah it's it's crazy i mean there's really been there's hardly any other leagues. I mean, maybe Portugal, Scotland, where there's just been teams that have been dominant for so, so long and have never, well, they've had, Shararo's had a little bit of a blip, but pretty much the entirety of their history, they were at least one of, if not the best club in Ireland. If you want to know more about us, you can find our podcast on Spotify by searching up Behind the Badge Football's Hidden Gems or by following us on Twitter where we are called at Behind Gems. You can also follow us individually through our social media links on the website. If you enjoyed this episode surrounding the history of Shamrock Rovers FC or have found it useful, You can listen to our other podcast episodes, which are available through our website and Spotify. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast because it helps other people discover our podcast series.